When you need to restore flow in an ischemic limb, there's no time to lose. You need the Pounce Thrombectomy System. The Pounce System from Sermonix is a purpose-built percutaneous device for removing thrombus and embolus in the peripheral vasculature. No capital equipment or aspiration needed. Just grab, go, and restore flow. It's simple. With the Pounce System, you place the basket wire distal to the clot, place the collection funnel proximal to the clot, pull back to collect the clot in the funnel, and retract the system through your guide sheath. The secret sauce? The Pounce Funnel is designed to macerate and dehydrate the clot, allowing you to remove even large amounts of material through a 7-front sheath. Visit PounceSystem.com to learn how physicians have used the device to accelerate on-table flow restoration while reducing use of thrombolytics. Pounce Thrombectomy. Strike quickly to capture and remove clot. This week on the Backtable Podcast. If I'm an internist, a family practitioner, a nephrologist, or anybody, they don't know the difference between you fixing something and somebody else. So what is important to them? Important to them is I send my patient to you. My patient comes back happy. The job is done. They're taken care of. And they think that I did a good job referring them to you to get fixed. Your complication rates are low. You answer the phone. You take care of things from A to Z. I don't have to worry about anything in between. Patient goes to you. They come back. I get my referral letter that says, this is what we did. I get a phone call that says, this is what we did. Those are all the things that they look at that are important. And so it's ease of access. You're basically saying, hello, this is Dr. Tamala. Yeah, I have a patient for, no problem. Give me their name and number. I'll take care of it. That's it. That's what they want. They just want everything taken care of. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This podcast is sponsored by Medtronic. From all of us, thank you. We are grateful for all that you are doing to bring health and safety to your patients every day. Have you guys heard the International Symposium on Endovascular Therapy, otherwise known as ISET? has moved their 2021 conference from January to May 9th through May 11th. We're excited to head to Hollywood, Florida for their 33rd annual meeting and looking forward to the live cases, late-breaking data, and connecting with multidisciplinary faculty. We're even more excited to offer Backtable listeners a discount to attend. You can register at iset.org, that's I-S-E-T dot org, with discount code Backtable to save 15% on the tuition. Enjoy. This is Sabine Dond as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, interventional radiologist, Dr. Srini Tamala, coming to us from the University of Miami. Welcome, Srini. Thanks, guys. Um, I'm honored to, uh, to be a part of this, and uh, I've heard a lot of great things, and it's great to, to be included. Awesome. Well, we're really happy to have you. So tell Thanks. us a little bit more about yourself, Srini. What, uh, uh, how did you end up at the University of Miami? Yeah. So I had kind of an interesting course. So I, uh, you know, I did my fellowship back in 1999, 2000 at, at Miami Vascular Institute. And shortly thereafter, I actually went into private practice and, uh, I worked at probably three, four private practice jobs, really trying to find what interested me and kind of something that I could be passionate about. And, and, you know, about seven, eight years into my uh, first job, I ended up doing, going back to UCLA and doing a fellowship in, in neuroradiology and stroke, uh, and then took a job out on the East Coast in Northern Virginia, outside Washington, D.C., where I would kind of worked for about almost eight, nine years. 
And then I got a call about four years ago from the previous chairman at, uh, in our department, because, you know, we're an independent department of interventional radiology. And, uh, we were the first ones in the country, which was kind of a, a big deal at the time. Wow. And uh, he said, look, you know, we haven't done peripheral arterial disease or critical limb ischemia in decades. You know, I, I really want somebody to come here and kind of help build that program. And, and uh, I talked it over with my family and everybody. And, uh, I made the trek down South and then here, here I am. That's awesome. I mean, how did, how did that director find to call you specifically for, for building a vascular program there? Yeah, I think a lot of it was just by chance. You know, I'd been friends with the previous chairman or at least had, you know, a uh, friendly relationship with him over the years. And, uh, um, you know, I had been talking to him about AMI, what are the opportunities, what on. That's kind of, and timing is everything, right? So that's kind of, yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. Exactly. Timing can be everything and you never know who in your life can kind of direct you in which way. So, so that's awesome. I mean, how about your training? Did you learn a lot of vascular in your training? What was that like? Yeah. I mean, I think I was lucky in the sense that I went to a very busy vascular fellowship that did really everything related to arteries and veins, including, you know, aneurysms and aortic dissections. And we did all the neuro stuff at the time because of the way the fellowship was structured. So I had a, you know, a, a really comprehensive, you know, vascular training and experience and background. So I felt very comfortable with a lot of those things. But I'll tell you though, there's a lot of, you know, physicians out there who had zero training or background in this stuff. And it's, it's something you can learn via, you know, whether it's, um, you know, didactic, going to conferences, lectures, reading, you know, I think reading is the biggest thing that can help you. And now, you know, it's not like when I trained where you were really learning from people, there was, there was textbooks, but there wasn't much on the internet at the time. Now, mm -hmm. really everything is on the internet from lectures to courses, to, to videos about live, you know, with live cases and so forth. And, and I tell all our trainees and stuff, look, I'm like, get on, watch those live cases. You know, you'll learn a lot in terms of what, you know, what are they using to describe things, language and geography, how they're fixing things. And you get an idea. So when you start reading about these uh, different therapies and treatment options and devices, you start understanding what's going on and you can conceptualize it. And then you can start getting, you know, more into the nitty gritty of the science behind uh, peripheral arterial disease. That's awesome. Yeah. No, no. I mean. Your current trainees, do, are they doing a lot of vascular cases in your program, um, aside from this outside learning or, or how is their training going? Yeah. So for us, you know, when we, when I started about four years ago, you can imagine I was starting the, the program. So it'd be like one case every few weeks, something like that. And, you know, now we're at the point where we're doing, you know, three, four kind of major PAD cases per week, which is, which is a big deal for us. The hardest part yeah. though is, you know, we have eight vascular fellows who really rotate at three, four different locations. And so, you know, this is probably, you know, I think last year they got some experience where they, at least each fellow did probably, you know, four cases or so, uh, mm -hmm. because we tried to get them involved as much as possible. But unfortunately I was doing a lot of them in, a, in an outpatient center where I had really no trainees. It was just me. And so they didn't see a lot of the stuff this year. I've moved really all our PAD and, and CLI stuff to the main ho university hospital. And so the fellows and the IR residents rotate through. So they say, oh, you know what? T this week, it's going to be this resident or fellow. 
And then the next week, it'll be a different one. So now by the end of the year, I think they're going to be at least pretty comfortable in, in starting a program. You know, nobody's an expert after a year, you know, or two years, but at least they'll, they'll ha have a comfort level where they can start delving into the science and learning more and trying to learn as much as they can on their own and get started, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It seems like, uh, again, how long ago was it when you started at University of Miami? So I started about, it'll be coming four years uh, this March. So we're about wow. three and a half years. Yeah, three and a half years. Yeah, it was tough. It wasn't easy, I'll be honest with you. I mean, it seems like when you started three and a half years ago, there was really no program in place. So um, how did you just get it started? Yeah, so I think that was the interesting part about it. You know, when I came down, because I had a lot of experience working in private practice, I kind of understood how referrals work and what, what works and what doesn't. And, and the biggest thing, you know, I, I realized is universities are similar to private practices and private institutions. You know, there's politics, right? Politics are everywhere. And the politics in the university level are, are, are a little bit stiffer. For instance, you know, if, if one entire department refers to a certain department, it's hard to get one doc to refer, you know, if you're in private practice and you got 10 private physicians working in different groups, you know, you get one or two of those referring to you. That's, that can be a lot of big practice. You know, you can get a lot of volume when you're in a university, you know, if the entire department of internal medicine or this department refers to a certain provider or a certain department, they don't really deviate. You know, you don't get half the department referring to you and half the department referring to another department. And so when I came here, I basically said, you know what? I'm going to basically meet as many physicians as I can uh, within the university and outside the university and introduce myself as one of the new vascular doctors, which I was. And I basically just told them what I did and, and uh, did practice building in that way. Uh, it was very difficult, as you can imagine. And, you know, I think for the trainees and the people just getting started in programs like this, you know, you can't. You can, depending on your local politics, but you know, if I'm a, a, let's say I'm a surgeon or a cardiologist or a specialist in something else, my focus is not to refer to somebody else if I can do it myself. And I think that's where a lot of the, the young docs get confused as they say, oh, well, I'm just going to just go there and I'll, and, and I assume that this specialist, whether it's GI, gynecology for uterine fibroid embolization, or maybe, you know, surgeons or cardiologists for vascular disease. You know, we're not living in that model 20 years ago where there was very few of them doing this stuff. Everybody does this stuff now. Every specialist is an expert at this. And at the end of the day, I tell my fellows, you know, all the time, I'm like, look, if I was a, a surgeon or a cardiologist, I wouldn't send you guys. Why would I want to send you guys patients? These <laughs> exactly, are my patients. Right? Like, yeah. like, why would I send them, you know? So obviously it depends on which part of the country, where you're working, which practice, but in general, you have to show yourself as a vascular expert and build the practice just like they would if they came to a new city or a new hospital. I mean, you just, so you just went up to, you know, you created meetings with different people in the hospital and then just kind of just introduced yourself. Or I mean, like, how did you actually yeah. have them know that you can produce right. a product or, or, or treat a patient as good as some of your other uh, colleagues. So realistically, what I did was I basically got on Google and I Googled, you know, wound care centers and primary care physicians, nephrologists, uh, podiatrists, etc. And I said, okay, where are all these offices? And I basically started cold calling. Them. I made a big list with all the phone numbers. 
and I would call him up and I would basically say, Hey, how are you? I'm so, and I would talk to the office manager at first because, you know, a lot of times the physician is not going to come to the phone if they don't know who you are. And I would talk to the office manager and say, Hey, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm so-and-so. This is what I do. This is my expertise. I'm you in town. And uh, I would love to come in the office and meet with you and, and your physicians, you know, when you guys have time, whether it's, uh, you know, early in the morning before the office opens or around lunchtime, or maybe even after work when they're, when they're done. And, you can imagine, you know, you cold call people, you have to have kind of the gift of gab or at least write down. It's kind of like the intro of a commercial, you know, write it down and say, this is what I'm going to try to get across. And then I would basically set these things up and, and, you know, believe it or not, most offices are very friendly. They just want good people that they can refer to. And, uh, that's how I met a lot of the physicians in the area. And, you know, you might go and meet 10, you might go to 10 offices, 20 offices. You might only get two that are going to refer to you. You know, usually what happens is you go in the office, you introduce yourself, you tell them, you know, what you can do. And it's not like you walk in there and say, hey, this is what I do. I, I, I fix things and blah, blah, blah. No, it's more like you go in, you try to develop a relationship, try to become, you know, somebody that they want to be friends with and just kind of be a good guy or a good person and just, you know, kind of let them lead the conversation. And eventually they'll ask you, well, tell me, what is it you do? And, you know, what kind of referrals do you think you would expect from us? And I kind of just went with the flow. And sometimes I'd be in there for two hours and we wouldn't even talk about what I did. It's just talking about random stuff like the news or this or that, because that's what, what they wanted. They wanted to see, is this somebody that I would feel comfortable sending my patients to? And, you know, at the end of that, they might say, well, you know, I enjoyed meeting you and uh, I'll definitely send you patients and you leave and you might get zero patients from them. Another yeah. doc may say, great meeting you. I'm not sure if I can refer to you and you might get 20 patients from them. So you just don't know. But you have to just get out there. You, you make your, you know, you have to meet people, get your name out there, tell them what you do, show your expertise. But you're going to have to do a lot of work, you know, after hours, before work, after work, weekends. I mean, the number of times I went to an office and sat there from 7 to 9 p.m. because the doc was so busy. You know, they kept saying, oh, hey, just give me a few more minutes, a few more minutes. And then finally, it's like 930 at night. And then they finally had like 10 minutes to meet me. So it's, it's not glamorous, but this is what other specialties do outside of radiology, I think. Uh, and they're very good at it because they expect that they're going to do it. I mean, it's such an important point you made. I mean, it's just you have to put in the extra work and also not be dissuaded when you don't get that referral from that person. But you have to keep on trying. I mean, I think that's that's something that's really important for um, our listeners and people who are building a program like this, exactly what you said. I mean, you would just put in all this extra effort and you'll, you'll reap the rewards eventually, but, but you can't just expect it to happen right then and there. And I think the biggest thing too, Sabine, is that, you know, even if you don't get referrals from a, a particular office or a physician or a, a group of docs right away, you have to remember at some point, whoever they're referring to may move, they may retire. They may fall out of favor with that practice. They may get into a, an argument over something, you know, that's uh, trivial. And then what'll happen is they'll think, well, who, who else can I refer? Ah, well, what about, you know, this guy Tamala? I met him. Let me give him a call and see if he's still available to accept referrals. And you'll be amazed how many times that can happen. It comes back to what we talked about in the beginning. I mean, you never know who you meet and what will come back into your life. And, and. Exactly. I mean, that's happened with us too. Just something changes and boom, then you have a referral center or, or a relationship that's really beneficial. So I think um, so. 
I mean, if, if I could give, you know, one more point about that. You yeah. Know, one thing I realized though, you know, PAD and CLI are very different from other things we do in the sense of you're competing with a lot of specialists who already do it and don't want to give it up. And so you have to be kind of above and beyond. You know, let's say I'm trying to build a practice in portal hypertension and tips. You're not really competing with anybody else. You just kind of have to say, hey, I do tips and here's my expertise and let me give you lectures and show you my, 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 uh, my experience in this procedure, in this therapy. And, you know, you're going to most likely get those referrals in time. PAD, if they send you the referral, you know, you have to be kind of above and beyond, you know, like for instance, most of my patients have my cell phone when they meet me. Um, and, you know, and, and I'll be honest with you, patients in general don't call me on my cell phone unless it's an absolute emergency. But the reason I do that is because that is the only way to build the, this long-term relationship I'm going to have with them for years and years, because it's not like, and, and you know, it's not like you fix them one time and then they're one and mm -hmm. done. It's, they're going to be coming back recurrently over time because of the disease process we're dealing with. But also, um, you have to be available 24 seven. Like, you know, I have docs that call me on a Sunday, they call me on, on Thanksgiving, they call me on this day, that day. And while you're building your practice, you gotta be above and beyond everybody else. You have to really go after it, you know? It's not gonna come easily. It takes a lot of effort, is it? Being available, it's, it's totally true. And, and the fact that you share your cell phone, I mean, it's something that I firmly believe in too, whether it's to patients and especially to referring doctors and stuff and just be available. Yeah, you might not be on call, but they may call you on the weekend and, and you can help out. And um, that's that's one of the utmost importance of, of building uh, any program. So uh, do you find that the patients like abuse your cell phone at all or no? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's I probably out of like 100 patients I give it to, there's always one or two that'll call incessantly about something. But overall, most people are pretty respectful. Yeah. And then, you know, you build that relationship and then they go, you know, they tell their primary doctor like, oh, I was, I was able to talk to Dr. Tamala and it just kind of builds from there. It's like a domino effect. And I'll so, tell you, the funniest uh -huh. thing is like, you know, like just this last week, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, a patient called me and she's like, Dr. Tamala, I got a complaint. They only gave me half a sandwich. I, I need somebody to give me another sandwich because she was in the hospital. I mean, <laughs> You can imagine some of the phone calls you get, you know, it's pretty funny. You know, it's, it's all worth it at the end. I mean, um, that's great. But it, what's your referral? So, you know, you're saying you've gone to these centers. Are these mostly wound care centers that you, uh, you went to in the beginning? Um, or are they OBLs or wh where did you necessarily yeah. go to? No, I basically kind of, I targeted, you know, who sees vascular disease, right? Who sees these patients? I mean, really it's internal medicine, family practice, podiatry, nephrologists see a lot of CLI, um, diabetes or endocrine physicians, obviously. And, uh, I even went and talked to a lot of the non-invasive, a lot of the cardiology groups, you know, they had a big non-invasive practice. Um, you know, obviously if they have interventionalists in their practice, a lot of times the their interventionists will take care of these things. But I still went in and met them and I said, look, you know, this is my, my area of focus, my research interests, my expertise. And, you know, look, I'm not looking for, you know, if I'm talking to a cardiologist, I don't go in there and say, send me your iliac disease and your SFA disease. Cause those are kind of quick things that they can fix and they'll take care of. But a lot of times I'll say, Hey, look, you know, my expertise is below knee or below ankle disease. And, uh, 
Um, you know, if you are ever find yourself that you're too busy, you're on vacation, you're off, you need somebody to help you out in any way, please give me a call. So it's a very non-threatening way of practice building because I'm not coming in to steal anybody. I'm just coming and saying, Hey, look, I'm available. If you ever need me or you want to go over a case and you'll be amazed over time, those relationships really do gel, you know, something will, something positive always comes out of those things. Yeah. I mean, it, it speaks to your character. And I think uh, most characters and and people who are treating this disease is you kind of put your ego aside. I mean, you, you got to kind of put yourself out there, not be in a non-threatening presence. And that's how you form relationships. So yeah. um, it's, it's almost putting your ego aside and not be like, oh, I'm the best one here. I will do it better than you. It's more like, hey, I can help you. You know, I'm here or things like that. And I think that's where IRs kind of don't learn this in when they're training because we don't focus on it as a community, but you know, we don't focus on practice building. And we, the other thing we don't focus on is that we always assume that, well, we're better technically, which you may or may not be, but we all say, well, I'm technically I'm better. I can fix that thing better than this person, but they don't realize, look at it, put yourself in the shoes of a referring physician, right? If I'm an internist, a family practitioner, a nephrologist or anybody, they don't know the difference between you fixing something and somebody else. So what is important to them? Important to them is I send my patient to you. My patient comes back happy. The job is done. They're taken care of. And they think that I did a good job referring them to you to get fixed. Your complication rates are low. You answer the phone. You take care of things from A to Z. I don't have to worry about anything in between. Patient goes to you. They come back. I get my referral letter that says, this is what we did. I get a phone call that says, this is what we did. Those are all the things that they look at that are important. And so it's ease of access. You're basically saying, hello, this is Dr. Tamala. Yeah, I have a patient for it. No problem. Give me their name and number. I'll take care of it. That's it. That's what they want. They just want everything taken care of. So they don't know the difference whether I'm fixing something or say a, a surgeon says, well, they had a blood, blood vessel, so I did a bypass. Well, they think, okay, great. My patient's doing well. They're happy and the problem was taken care of. So you cannot use, I am better from a technical standpoint than somebody else. It just doesn't fly in this day and age. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, exactly. That's, that's what I do, whether it's PAD or, or, or other services, it's just someone calls you, like, I'll take care of the order. Like, I'll take care of everything. Make yep. their life easy, and that's yep. that's what they come out of, you know. And yeah, and uh, uh, that's that's some great advice. But in your program, um, is it is it a general concept, or do you have like an official service line, a, a, a peripheral arterial disease mm. service of excellence, or, or what it, is it? Is it officially labeled? Right, right. I think that was the biggest. That's a great question, Sabine. I mean, that's the probably the biggest change we made. You know, our new uh, <clears throat> chairman started about a year ago. And, uh, you know, he's a big, probably has at least in the top three in terms of volume for prostate embolization. So he really understood how to build a practice. And once he took over, you know, we had a, a discussion and he said, look, we need to break into service lines because it's hard to be an expert at everything. You can be competent, but to go to that next level where you understand, okay, how do, how should we educate research science? grants, all those things, at least in the academic setting, it helps to be broken up into service lines. So for us, the way it works is everybody does general IR, whether that's GI bleeds, filters, trauma, it said biopsies, et cetera.
But then there's always a director of, of a service line. So for instance, we have this vascular service line, which includes arterial disease, dialysis, and venous disease. So I'm the director of our vascular service line. And within that, I have somebody who's uh, in charge of superficial venous disease and deep venous disease. And I head up the kind of the percutaneous dialysis fistula and the arterial work, PAD and critical limb ischemia. And then we have somebody that's a director of women's health, men's health. And then we have somebody that's uh, interventional oncology, a director of that. So it doesn't mean that other people can't do cases or, or therapies related to these other service lines. It just means that that director will basically say, these are the protocols, the algorithms, this is how we do it. And everybody kind of has to do it the same way. And the, the way we determine those algorithms is based on literature and best evidence. And we try to do things, you know, standard of care and so forth. So that if I do a PAD case, I'm not deviating too much from somebody else that's doing it. We kind of do it the same way. Same thing with superficial venous disease or oncology, tips, et cetera. And so we have broken up into individual service lines and that's made a huge push because now what happens is all these certain types of cases get funneled to me, at least on a discussion level, you know, like, okay, how would you approach this? What should we do? And so forth. And then I have to come up with all the things about, well, let's, let's do some research projects related to this, this, and this. So I think that made a big difference as well in terms of streamlining things. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's great. I mean, you know, from my background and in, in my group, I mean, we don't, we don't have official lines. And so it's, it's really nice seeing that, that if you have these official lines, you can really just discuss cases and make things more organized. So, so that's, uh, that's great. How many IRs are in your program, by the way? So we have, uh, if I'm correct, about 12 faculty, um, it's all fellowship trained in, in CAQ'd, although now it's the IRDR, right? We got the IRDR certificate. Yeah. And then we have anywhere on average from seven to nine trainees. And those okay. are IR residents. And, and now the fellowship is, you know, is going away. So they're all kind of IR residents, but okay. we have about seven to nine every year. That's great. So, I mean, you have all these service lines and, and 12 faculty. I mean, uh, you don't have to have 30, 40 faculty to be able to do that. And I think that that's, that's important for our listeners to know. Do you, uh, do you do wound care, um, personally, or, or do you refer for the wound care? Yeah. So I actually, I refer for the wound care and I'll tell you why. Part of the reason is because I'm, I'm kind of like a solo guy doing this. Right. Mm -hmm. And just for me to just manage the service uh, of all our patients and treating them in therapy, that if I added wound care, uh, it would just be another animal. I think that's another animal that you really have to delve in. And if you really want to do it right, you can't kind of just do it part time. And so I think if we had, you know, three, four people doing this, I think we could start saying, okay, who's going to be the wound care expert? And I think we could get training in that and get accustomed to that and comfortable with it and do it. But right now I refer all of them uh, to podiatrists that I know that are excellent at wound care. Yeah. And, you know, it comes back to, you know, being it, you can't be an expert at everything. Right. And, yeah. and you only have right. so much time in a day. And I think it's important. Wound care is not just about changing dressing or, or, or applying a topical, you know, solution to the wound. There's a lot that goes into it. And yeah. I, I think podiatrists are, are amazing. They're super sharp and, and they yep. do amazing work with these wounds um, that, that we take care of. So, we refer to a wound care center too. 
Um, we're very well aligned with them. And I think, you know, it just helps. And try and take everything might just dilute your work instead of, instead of really uh, strengthen your work. I think so. And remember, at the end of the day, you know, the reason to break into service lines, we want excellence, right? We're trying to promote clinical. And if you're into research and publishing, you know, clinical and, and, and research excellence. I mean, those are the things we're trying to focus on. And so I can't dabble in wound care. Like what's, what's the point for me to dabble in wound care at this point? You know, it's, uh, it just doesn't help the patient out. Yeah. I mean, I think understanding wounds and being able to, you know, follow your patient and see if it's going good or bad is, is, is great. So, but you know, exactly being able to say that you can be an excellence in wound care. I, I think it's great to have podiatrists that you are, 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 are very uh, close to. What, what about a vascular lab? Uh, you know, by a vascular lab, I mean, by the arterial duplexes and, and other things. Is that, is that necessary in a program to be, you know, part of that or can that be separate? Yeah, no, I think a vascular lab is important training. I mean, we got a lot of vascular lab training, um, you know, in my fellowship and I think it, it it's a piece of the puzzle, right? Uh, it's hard. You, it's hard to be a vascular es- expert if you can't read PVRs and understand, you know, TCPO2 or TCOMs or ABIs, TBIs, PPGs, etc. I think that's a very important diagnostic skill to have. Um, the good thing is that if you didn't do it in your residency or your fellowship, you can take the you can study and take the test that they that they provide, or you can do one of the courses at SIR or one of the other vascular meetings where they provide this type of training. So. I do think it's very, very important. I think, unfortunately, most of our trainees don't get a lot of vascular lab experience. You know, our guys and, and, and women are getting the training just because I try to go over all that stuff, either in conferences that I give or whenever we go over cases, I try to focus on that. And I think it's very important. Yeah. Do you think that, that the RPVI certification is necessary um, for everyone to have or, or kind of just an extra bonus? Well, I mean, I think it depends on your comfort level. You know, we, I don't think you really need to be an RPV. I mean, you don't, you, you don't have to have the actual certification to be able to read the studies and interpret them. You can be an expert at it without that. I think if you're going into a place where you're trying to show expertise or you're trying to get into a vascular lab where they're like, no, no, everybody has to have that, that, that certification, then I think it's important. You know, I don't want to be, I think I'm trying not to be dogmatic about it and say, yes, everybody should have it. But, you know, really, do you really need to have it to, to look over this stuff? Not really. Um, I think where it helps is it helps people who have zero background. I think it helps if they pursue that because then they become experts at it and they really understand it. But for somebody like me, I had two years of, of training where we read probably a thousand of these studies, you know, in an accredited lab. And so... To go to the next level, I don't think made that much of a difference. But I think if you have zero training in it and you want to become an expert at it, and also if you want to show your referring docs or maybe the hospital that's a closed lab and you want to say, look, I should be a reader one day a week, then I think you should get it. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, it, it totally makes sense. And, you know, it's, it's important. You can't be so dogmatic about things. And, and some people, even in our field, are so dogmatic. It says, you must have this. You must do this. But just like you said, it's, it's, if, if you're trained, we're all trained in order to read these studies and you can get it if you want to be better or learn more, but you can offer this service and it shouldn't dissuade you uh, or any of our listeners to 
not pursue doing PAD or CLI because they're not RPVI or they weren't trained in it. It's, it's, it's not such a dogmatic approach in, in real life. Yeah. What about, uh, you know, in your in University of Miami, cardiologists and the vascular surgeons, how is your relationship with them? I think when I first got there, they didn't know what to expect. Um, so, our, you know, I think the surgeons were not used to somebody other than them being involved in arterial work and it, it, they felt a little bit nervous at first or threatened, like, you know, oh, is somebody going to take all my patients, you know, as if I'm coming in and everybody's just going to hand all their patients to me, right? It's not realistic. But when I sat back and I think this is good for our trainees, when I really sat back and thought about it, I understand why, you know, if you're a cardiologist, you know, who is your referral base? Your referral base is really patients that come in with hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, et cetera. And they basically then follow them for life after that, right? And if they develop leg pain, oh, this is PAD, I'll take care of it. Oh, you've got a varicose vein, I'll take care of it. Their referral pattern is, re relies really on referrals related to cardiac disease. And then it relies on them just holding on to patients and taking care of them, you know, long-term. But I was thinking about who's the referral base for an IR as well as a surgeon. It's very similar. It's internal medicine, family practice, nephrologists, endocrinologists, wound care centers, podiatrists, et cetera. We have the identical referral base. And so that's why I think it becomes much more competitive because, you know, if I'm a, an established physician in the area and another doc comes in, and they have the same referral base, then basically what you're thinking to yourself is, whoa, I better watch out because if this physician is good or affable or easy to get along with and does good work, they may be able to, you know, disrupt my referral base. And I think that's where we were when I first started is they were very worried about that. And, you know, probably a month into it, I had an interaction with one of them and I, and, and I said flat out, I said, look, I said, I'm not here for your patients. I don't really care about your patients. If you want to consult me, if you want me to help you out in terms of, uh, you know, a, a discussion about a patient, or I need you to give me your opinion on something, I'd love to collaborate, but I'm not here to steal anybody's patients. I'm here to build my own practice and, and that's the way I'm going to do it. And amazingly, once I said that, it really took everybody kind of, everybody relaxed because I said, I'm not here to take your patients or steal them. Everybody just kind of calmed down. And, uh, you know, at, at the big, probably for a few years, I got zero referrals from our vascular surgery department. Um, but I in turn built my own practice and then I started referring them triple A's and carotids and bypasses and endorectomies. And then they started looking at me in a different way. They started saying, wait a minute, this guy is actually doing things the way I would. And he's referring me patients. This is amazing. And so then all of a sudden I started getting some referrals from them on cases that they thought were, well, this might, you know, this is a blow knee or a blow ankle case. You know, I'm not sure we'll be able to do, see if there's anything you can do. And so then I started getting, uh, it was, became a much more collaborative thing. I mean, look, 99% of my referrals are from non-surgical and, uh, and non-cardiology providers. Uh, probably 1% come from non-invasive cardiologists and vascular surgeons. So, you know, I'm not saying that my referrals are still coming from them in a big way, but at least it's a very collaborative approach the way I, way I handled it with them. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to look back and you have to kind of sit back and pat yourself on the back. Three and a half years you've built that. That's, that's amazing. Srini. It's a good job. 
Thanks. Uh, I'm exhausted, but thanks. Yeah. No, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work that goes in there. So it's, it's, uh, kudos to you. Kudos, kudos to you. Now, I appreciate what about it. marketing? Doing What about yeah. uh, marketing for your program? Does University of Miami help you out at all? Or are you just doing it all on yourself and, your, and a couple of your colleagues? Yeah. I think universities are in a tough position because, again, it depends on which university. You know, us in particular... You know, they, they, they try very hard not to market for individual physicians, right? It's always marketing departments. And so for us, you know, the university in general, they don't have tons of money to do marketing for everybody. And so most of our marketing has been through our department via either email or flyers or grand rounds, uh, talks, meet and greets, lunch and learns, as they call them, right? Where you go to an office and you say hi during lunchtime, you give them a little talk if that's what they prefer. Um, that's the type of marketing we're doing. I think, you know, if I was in private practice, I would try to convince my, my partners, hey, look, can we do a, a true marketing campaign where we, um, you know, send out a little kind of one page, two page brochure to all these physicians in a certain area. I think that's the way I would do it, you know? Um, but I, so I, I do think it's another piece. It's very important. Um, but the biggest thing is definitely word of mouth from patients. And then the other one is referrals from physicians who are, see those types of patients. Got it. Got it. Um, what about, uh, you know, about social media and, and, uh, your program? I mean, we, we, we do a lot of discussion on Twitter, uh, which tends to be a lot of fun. I mean, people show cases. Is that, is that a, a good place? Do you think Twitter is a, a, a good platform? Yeah, I think from talking to a lot of people that are very heavily involved in social media, kind of like the experts that help you, you know, do Facebook pages, Instagram, et cetera. What I've learned and what they tell me is that, and I think we kind of know this being on Twitter, is that, you know, Twitter is really kind of to show people like, hey, look, this is what we're doing. It doesn't generate tons of referrals. I don't get patience from Twitter. You know, it's more, it's more for my colleagues and I to either have discussions about things or to show things that are kind of different from what they would normally see or something that, oh, this is a cool case. I think everybody might think this is pretty interesting or how, how would you have handled it? What I understand from them is that Facebook and Instagram is, is a much bigger platform uh, for getting referrals because it's more uh, patient-centric, right? It's the average person out there who's looking on t- Instagram or Twitter. I mean, I mean, Instagram or Facebook and you have a page or a presence. And so my understanding is that's a, a much better way to practice build. I think Twitter is great for letting your other colleagues see what you do, but I think Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, are huge social media outlets for, for um, practice building. Yeah, I think like Twitter is more like a case report, kind of just show you know, interesting things um, and kind of have our colleagues learn about it and across specialties. Um, so I agree. Yeah. You know, I don't want, you know, people out there to think that this is the only way to do it. I mean, I came into a certain environment. I kind of analyzed it and I looked at what's going to work here. And so this worked for me here, right? But it may not work when somebody else goes to another town, city or job or whatever. You have to look at your landscape and see what's going on. You know, maybe when you join an IR practice in some other city, they have a, a, a relationship with the surgeons there where, you know, you, you get a lot of referrals from them. That's fine. That's great. Kudos. I love it. That's, that's spectacular. 
So, you know, my model worked for me and it worked here because of the circumstance I had. So I think I just wanted to make sure people don't think this is the only way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to be able to adapt out there and, and, and see what works for you. But your your words of wisdom have been great. I mean, um, they, I think they can apply to most people building a program. Now, one other one other kind of really cool thing that you started over the last year is your channel on YouTube. Uh, what's your vascular channel all about? Yeah. So, you know, I started this YouTube channel, you know, Dr. Tamala's vascular channel, which is kind of generic and funny, but I thought like, what, what else can I call? I don't know what else to call it, you know, but the reason I started that was it had more to do with, you know, as I was giving more and more talks at, at meetings and conferences and stuff like that, and even our own fellows and, and IR residents, you know, they were always asking like, you know, do you have this in, in video format? Can I watch this later? Can I watch it at a different time? I missed it, et cetera. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't, I didn't even know how to put it on video. That's the funny part, you know? So what I said to myself, when I finally started doing a lot more of this, I said, you know what? I should just put these all on this YouTube channel and then anybody can watch them whenever they feel like. And, 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 and I had always had this passion for like, I like to kind of teach people how to do things. And so, which I guess makes sense in that the university with all these trainees. And so I thought to myself, well, you know what? I want to do an educational channel. I mean, education is a passion of mine. And, and I was getting asked by not only IRs, but also surgeons and cardiologists and physicians and training and so forth when I was doing you know, I'd been doing some courses for different companies on, on PAD and CLI, and they all ask the same questions. They all want to know the same stuff. And so I was like, you know what? I think now's the time. And that's, that's kind of how I started it. And so now what I'm trying to do is, you know, I'm trying to get everybody, guys like you who are experts at this stuff and some of the other people that we know and talk to, to record a talk on specific topics. And then that way I can upload them to this channel. Um, and uh, I think it's uh, it's an easy way for people to learn. Yeah, I mean, it's so neat. You know, I think, you know, having access to lectures tends in the past used to be very hard. I mean, you either have to buy a $300 video library to a conference or, you know, it, it just makes it hard. But you opened up a different door and then just said, look, this is all free. Learn on your own will. You can learn anywhere. And I think it's kind of a new generation of, of education. Uh, from social media to what you're doing on YouTube. And, and I, I'm really, really excited to see, you know, your, your channel explode. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, we've got, you know, coming up, we've got, you know, presentations on acute DVT, chronic DVT, uh, acute stroke. What are all the techniques? how to approach a patient with critical uh, limb-threatening ischemia by one of the vascular surgeons I know at Mass General. She's going to do a talk on that, like how she approaches patient like that. And, and one thing I realized with a lot of these courses and training and stuff, nobody gets down to kind of like how you actually do something. You know, the, everybody shows like, I recanalize this and this. But, you know, if I think back to myself years ago when I was trying to learn this stuff, I could never find any place where I could say like, what are all the ways to recanalize a chronic total occlusion in an SFA. Can somebody show me what that looks like on a video? And so, although you can find it kind of piecemeal in different areas, I was just like, why don't we just put it all in one spot? Here's how I do tibials. Here's how I do this. Now let me get somebody else that's an expert at this to show me how they do it. And then you kind of have one talk on how to cross CTOs, you know? So that's kind of what my, uh, my theme was with this channel. 
Yeah. No, like I said, it's it's open for all. You know, anyone can go see it. And uh, the generic name actually works pretty well. I think it has a good ring to it, Trini. So <laughs> good job. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you gave a lot of words of wisdom um, to all our listeners out there. I think the way how you marketed your program is is very, very wise. Um, and I think it can really apply to most people around the country. So thank you so much for your time. Um, if there's nothing else, you know, then then I think we can wrap up. I think it's been great. It's been an honor, guys. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to the next time we're playing poker, Sabine. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Thanks, Sweetie. Thanks guys. Mm-hmm.